If you would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, how will... Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. This morning, as we look at Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, usually what I do is I try to start off with an illustration, a nice little story uh, that kind of fits into to what we're talking about this morning. Um, I want to reserve some time at the end uh, because I feel like we need to address what happened uh, on Friday in our, in our nation. I think it's important for us to be uh, talking about this as believers and about uh, what, uh, what we should do to respond. Uh, so... I'm going to mention that briefly at the end as well. So uh, we're just going to dive right into Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13 here, looking at the parable of the dishonest manager. So we have a story here that Jesus is telling. Uh, Previously in Luke 15, he was talking to the Pharisees who were upset with him that he was spending time with tax collectors, with sinners. But now we read in verse 1 that Jesus turns to his disciples, and he has some truth that he wants to convey to them. And so what Jesus does is he starts off with an illustration. He tells them a story. 
So let's walk through this story together a moment. Uh, we have a rich master, and we have a manager, a man who takes care of his accounts, those who are indebted to the master. And what happens is the master catches wind that this manager is mismanaging funds. He is not managing the accounts correctly. We don't know exactly what he is doing, what he is doing wrong, but we know that, as the Bible said, he is wasting his master's possessions. So, uh, as would happen even today, the master calls the manager into his office and he, uh, for a little chat. And he says, you know what? Uh, I've heard that you've been wasting my money, and what's going to have to happen is I'm going to have to let you go. I'm sorry. Uh, you need to give me your record of the accounts. So uh, the manager at this point realizes that he is in a bind. He is in a very tough spot. No one will want to, man to hire a manager who is fired for mismanaging his boss's possessions. And he says to himself, you know what? I'm not tough enough to dig. He is a white-collar worker. He is uh, saying, you know what? Uh, I don't have uh, the ability uh, to do manual labor. And the other problem is, is that I have too much pride to beg. So what am I going to do? And he comes up with a plan. And this is his plan. It's risky. It's a little underhanded. But he thinks that it just might work. So he goes to all of his master's creditors, and he asks them one by one, how much do you owe my master? They take out their slip, and they say, well, I owe him 100 measures of oil, or I owe him 100 measures of wheat. And what the manager says is, take your bill and reduce it by a certain percentage. He says, if you owe 100 measures of oil, let's make it 80. If you have 100 measures of wheat that you owe, let's make it 50. Now, at this point, we need to understand what's going on here. Uh, some of the, the commentators that I read made an argument that what this man was doing was taking off interest that uh, was put on these accounts that maybe the manager would get at this point. But um, I don't believe that's what actually is going on here. Uh, the Jews were not allowed. It was unlawful to charge interest to other Jews. So um, if he was doing that, that would have been against the law. Uh, maybe that was the, the dishonest part that he was doing, um, but I don't believe that's what he is doing here. Um, uh, what I believe he is doing is he is simply reducing the amount that these uh, creditors owe the master. And the manager knows at this point that there would be no way for the master to be able to verify the accounts. That's what the manager was for. He knew these things. And so... Uh, if he were to reduce these accounts, the master would have no idea, uh, in a sense, and would have to go with what uh, was written on the paper. So, because the manager then displayed grace and mercy to these creditors by reducing their debt, now they saw this manager in a totally new light. And this was his plan. They saw him as a man of kindness, because the debt was reduced, they probably review, viewed themselves now as being in this man's debt. In a sense that they owed him one because he reduced the debt that they owed to the master. And so he was hoping that when he got fired, 
the ones who had their debts reduced would remember the kindness that they had, sh- that he- they had been shown and that one, they would maybe offer him a job, uh, maybe that they would off- uh, welcome him into their home. He was hoping that they would return the favor. I've done something for you. I hope that you would do something for me in the future. And in the end, the plan works. The master sees what happens. He sees what this manager has done. And instead of getting upset, trying to recoup his losses, he commends the manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't take legal action against the manager because he probably knew that there was nothing he could do at this point. The master couldn't help but admire the shrewdness, the wisdom of the manager's actions. Now, this is one of the more difficult parables of Jesus to understand. Uh, It's been interpreted in many different ways. Uh, We're not going to get into all the ins and outs. We're going to stay at a a pretty, like a 30,000-foot view to, to understand what we know to be true in this parable. First of all, what Jesus is not saying to his disciples. We need to be very clear on this. Jesus is not using this story to tell his disciples to be like this manager and be dishonest in your business dealings. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not commending the manager on his dishonesty. We need to be very clear about that. He is commended on his shrewdness. Um, We see this in Hollywood often, in movies where the criminal or the outlaw is the main character. And we kind of grow attached to that character, right? Uh, one of the, a, a movie that I enjoy is called Ocean's Eleven, where we have these characters um, who are led by their mastermind, Danny Ocean, and he assembles this crew of crooks, of these criminals. And the, the job that they get together to do is to rob Las Vegas casinos. Uh, high risk, but high, very high reward. Uh, Obviously, no one would ever say that robbing millions of dollars from a casino is something that we should do or endorse. But you grow attached to these characters. You find yourself rooting for the criminals. You hope that they get away with what they are doing because of their masterfully devised and executed plan. You are just amazed at what they are able to come up with so that they can penetrate this vault and get away with stealing millions of dollars. In desiring to teach his disciples the importance of shrewdness, he used an example that he knew that they would relate to. Not so that they would be dishonest, but that they would understand the value of shrewdness. So what is Jesus saying here in this parable then? He's telling his disciples that like this manager, you need to employ shrewdness, wisdom in your life that you need to be as spiritually shrewd as this man was business shrewd. And if you start to say the word shrewd over and over again, it starts to sound funny, doesn't it? So when we say shrewd, we're talking about wisdom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We can say that those two are are synonyms. So the reason he tells this story is to teach his disciples some important truths about how they should handle their finances and how they should handle the possessions that God has given him. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Starting in verse 9, 
Um, Jesus says this, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. This is a Hebrew word meaning uh, mammon, meaning not just your money, but all of your possessions, what you have been given, so that when it fails, you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is encouraging his disciples here to use their wealth and their possession for eternal purposes uh, in their life and in other people's lives as well. Uh, Philip Ryken, who writes a commentary on Luke, says this. He says, The honest manager hoped that he would be welcomed into the homes of people that he had helped in his line of business. We are hoping to be welcomed into eternal and everlasting glory if we have used our money wisely. Friends will be waiting there to receive us. So what does it mean to make friends for everlasting glory? It means to use our resources to help others in their time of need. Um, When we bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord, we thank Him for what He has blessed us with, and we pray that it would be used as a blessing for others. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's calling us to make investments for eternity in the lives of others. In the end, these people will be there when we are received into our eternal dwelling. So that's the first thing. Um, With our resources, we need to have an eternal perspective because this manager, with his shrewdness, he was having a long-term perspective. He was thinking of the long view. We need to do the same with our possessions. Second, uh, in verses 10 through 12, Jesus calls us to be trustworthy with our money because it's an indication of our eternal character. How we handle our finances, our, our possessions, is an indication uh, of the, the, our spiritual lives. He says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you're faithful with the small things, you can be entrusted to be faithful in large things. Would you want a high, to hire a CFO for a company if he couldn't manage his own finances? Of course not. You wouldn't want to do that. When we elect elders and deacons, we look at the qualifications of them. And in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, the qualification of an elder is this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We want men who are faithful in small things so that when God calls them to big things, they will be faithful in that as well. So Jesus is bringing up the disciples' character here. He's calling them to be men of character. That disciples of Christ should be men and women of integrity, whether it's small things like our own personal budget whether it's large things uh, like the budget of a church. Um, We need to be faithful with the possessions that he has given us. God may not give us vast amount of riches, but he's calling us to be faithful with what we have been given and to use it for his purposes. So the question is, how do we use our possessions like our house, our cars, uh, for our benefit? Do we use it for our own benefit or enjoyment only? Or do we use our possessions to bless others and for the, uh, for, for the benefit of others? Because how we use our material possessions is an, ed- a, an indication 
of the condition of our hearts. So that leads us to the final point that Jesus makes this morning. He says, don't let money be your master. Instead, serve God. Very famous passage here in Luke 16, 13. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is not an evil in itself. We know that. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. If we love anything more than God, then God is not in the proper place in our lives. How we handle our finances truly shows the position that God has in our lives. Jesus clearly tells his disciples that money should not have mastery over them, and it should not have mastery over us either. So what does this mean, practically speaking? Does it mean that we can never spend any money on ourselves? No. But it does mean that we should, as Jesus said, give to God what is God's, first and foremost. When we make a purchase, it'd be good to ask this question, does this purchase fit with my spiritual priorities? Does this purchase reflect what is going on in my heart? So, in our passage this morning, Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples about financial and uh, financial shrewdness and shrewdness with our possessions. But I believe that we could also be wise in other areas of our lives, that we can take this uh, to, to other aspects of our lives. And uh, this is where I want to talk briefly about uh, what happened this past Friday uh, with the Supreme Court decision. Uh, as many of you or, or all of you probably know, the Supreme Court decided in a 5-4 decision that uh, same-sex marriage should, uh, uh, you cannot ban same-sex marriage in any of the 50 states uh, in our country. Um, if, uh, if you've been following the, the winds of culture and where it's blowing, you probably were not surprised by this, but, uh, but very saddened by it. I know that I was. And uh, as Christians, we need to be talking about this. And we need to know how to respond properly, honestly, in wisdom and with shrewdness um, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, as I've been reading blogs and, and watching the Twitter feed and what's been going on on Facebook, I think some of the things that we need to realize as Christians and how we need to respond is in, in these ways. First of all, is to not panic. This is not the end of the world. We will know when the end of the world will be because Jesus will come back, and this is not it. So we do not need to panic. Um, do we have a right to be sad and frustrated and righteously angry? Uh, of course we do. And as Christians, we should be, uh, honestly. But we don't need to panic because even though the Supreme Court has made this decision, things have not changed. God's definition of marriage has not changed because we know that God's definition is not according to what the Supreme Court decides. It's according to what the Bible tells us. The Bible has not changed. It has not been amended. Um, five people cannot change what the Bible says about marriage. And honestly, married, the marriage relationship is one that is vital to the image of Scripture because we see God's design for marriage in the very beginning, 
And we see God's design for marriage even in the very end because we will be joined together in the marriage feast of the Lamb. So, same-sex marriage may be legal in all 50 states now. But that doesn't mean that a fundamental institution that has been designed by God has suddenly and drastically changed. It has not. What's going to be required of us, though, as Christians, especially as we are training and raising our children, is that we need to clearly teach what we believe, according to Scripture, the, the meaning of marriage is. Because we are going to be in a culture that is going to be teaching and demonstrating something totally different. So now, we need to clearly teach this, especially as we raise our children. We need to clearly state our biblical uh, convictions when it comes to marriage. Because this is so vitally important. Because we know that marriage is an image of the gospel. Because it displays God's love for us, his church. So, uh, a couple of things that I want you to know uh, about uh, the PCA and about Trinity. Uh, the PCA released a, uh, a statement of belief um, on their website uh, from their denominational magazine's website by faith. Uh, you can find it on our Facebook page. I, I put a link to it there. Uh, we as a church at Trinity firmly believe that God ordained marriage to be a union for his own glory of a male and female and from the beginning, the purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the love that God has for us, his bride. And that does not change. So, uh, because we hold uh, to these biblical beliefs, um, obviously we don't agree with the Supreme Court decision. We don't agree with it. Or the rising tide of cultural acceptance of same-sex marriage. And the reason that we don't agree, it's not political, it's not cultural, it's not sociological. The reason is simply Biblical. Simply biblical. This is our first authority. And honestly, that's what we learned this past week in VBS. So um, as your pastor, um, I do not endorse the Supreme Court's decision. Um, I will not uh, uh, participate in, in a, a same-sex wedding ceremony. Uh, Trinity will not allow same-sex marriages to be conducted here. Uh, we need to be clear on those biblical convictions. But we need to be clear in such a way that shows grace and mercy to those who do not agree with us. Uh, the Bible is very clear when it comes to homosexuality, yet the Bible is very clear on the prevalence of grace. Uh, I keep coming back to this idea that Jesus was chastised for the fact that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And I pray that that would be what people blame us for doing as well. And the only way that we can be blamed for that is by showing an inordinate amount of grace and love to those who do not agree with us. We want everyone to be able to experience the same grace and love and mercy that we have been shown in Christ. Because we ourselves are fellow sinners, and this is not easy. So what do we need to do as Christians? We need to engage in prayer. We need to pray for our nation, for our Christian institutions, for, for pastors, for religious leaders. Uh, we need to continue to pray. But we need to remember the truth of the gospel. That Jesus, um, that we have been made for eternity. And Jesus, in our passage this morning, reminds us that we were made for eternity. That temporal things like Supreme Court decisions 
like money and possessions. Uh, they're important, but we need to use them wisely for the glory of God, but they are just temporary. The gospel itself is eternal. How we act in this life is an indication of what we believe about the next. Let me repeat that. How we act in this life is an indication of how we believe or what we believe about the next. So we have hope as Christians. We have hope. Even though we may not agree with the Supreme Court decision, we have hope. And we should live as people who have hope. We should also use our wealth and possessions to share with the others the good news of Jesus. And as we close this morning, I want to close with encouraging words from Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we have been lost in our sins, but Christ has redeemed us by his blood. And because of that, we have hope. And I pray that no matter what, whether it's using our material possessions, whether it's our thoughts towards uh, decisions in our country, that we will have this eternal perspective that because of Christ, we have Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you have poured out your blessings on us, that you have given us a mind, uh, the ability to display wisdom and to be shrewd with the, the gracious gifts that you have given to us. And I pray that we would use uh, our wealth, our material possessions, not for our own benefit and for our glory, Uh, but for your benefit and for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. For the ways that we are not doing that, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts of it, that you would draw us into repentance. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful in little so that in eternity we can be faithful with much. And Father, we pray for our nation right now. Uh, I pray for us as Christians that we would have the courage Uh, to stand for truth in a way that is gracious and kind and loving. That people would know that we are Christians not because of the stand that we take on same-sex marriage, but because of the love that we show. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to lose hope, that we would not panic, but, Lord, that we would rest and trust in our great and sovereign God. And we pray this in Jesus' name.